Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. I'm recording this from the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people. First Nations people have been the custodians of this land for tens of thousands of years. Colonisation is a process that law and regulation have been deeply complicit in, taking away land, sea, children and lives. I want to acknowledge that despite that, 60,000 years of wisdom continues. And so too does non-Aboriginal Australia's obligations to take a daily personal responsibility to support reconciliation through truth and justice. Now today I'm talking with Professor George Williams, AO. George is the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Planning and Assurance, Anthony Mason Professor and Scientia Professor at the University of New South Wales. He's written and edited 37 books, including on the Uluru Statement from the Heart, Constitutionalism, Federalism, Terrorism, Human Rights, National Security and Social Justice. Uh, Look, suffice to say, I'm talking to another leading expert on regulation. Today, George and I discuss the role of corruption, truth and regulation in Australian politics. In December 2018, Scott Morrison promised that if elected, he would establish a federal independent commission against corruption. A draft exposure bill was introduced in 2020, but has been roundly criticised by experts, academics and the legal community, uh, who all state that it's woefully inadequate and that it would conceal rather than reveal and address corruption. In that time, we've seen a normalisation of scandals regarding the potential misuse of public money, including identified through uh, independent reports by the Australian Auditor General. It's not an exaggeration to say that we sit at the top of a slippery slope. And if we don't get off now by creating a good accountability measure on government to prevent corruption, it's not clear where we will end up. It's an important conversation and I hope you enjoy it. So please subscribe, rate the podcast. We're available on Google Podcasts, iTunes or anywhere else you can find your reputable regulation podcasts. Thanks so much for, for coming today, George. Um, as you know, one of the, the first questions we ask in this podcast is, why does regulation matter? That's not always obvious. And why does it matter to your community? I think regulation matters because uh, you need regulation to live in a civilised society that treats people fairly, uh, that treats people with dignity, and in particular protects the vulnerable and marginalised people within our community. Uh, without regulation, it's a free-for-all. Uh, survival of the fittest. And I think it's really important that we have a society that reflects our values of compassion, generosity, and regulation that ensures that we live in a society that reflects those things. Yeah, so there's a real, I mean, we often think about regulation as this kind of really decontextualized and kind of dry um, uh, process or thing, but it's quite infused with those values. It's a bit of a minimum standard or, or a flaw on those in some ways, I imagine. It is. And uh, I mean, regulation, good regulation is always about values. It's it's not just about rules. It's about rules to a purpose. Uh, So it might be about community protection. 
There might be food standards to make sure that we're not poisoned uh, with the food that we buy. It might be about human rights. That's about ensuring we have regulations that people can speak their mind uh, without ending up in court. Or it might be regulation designed to ensure that vulnerable people have access to housing. So all sorts of regulations. And of course, you've got good and bad regulation. There are many, many examples of really poor regulations that aren't infused by the right values or just too old. But if it's got right, then you know, regulation is vital, actually, for bringing about the sort of society in which we want to live. And um, what one uh, area of regulation that's in the news at the moment is around regulation of the conduct of public sector officials, um, so people working in departments and whatnot, um, people in um, police in the Australian Federal Police, but also parliamentarians. Um, and the question of corruption has, has come up. I guess... You know, all increasingly, um, you know, there's almost a view in Australia that all politicians lie. Um, and so is there a question that we need regulation here or not when, when all politicians lie? What would you say um, to the view um, from people in the community that, you know, lying is just a feature of politics that we need to accept? Well, I think the first thing to say is one of the most important things that regulation does is uh, ensure that people who have power exercise it responsibly and on our behalf. Um, it's always a big temptation if you've got public power to use it to line your own pocket, to benefit your friends and family, uh, and not to act in the community interest. So regulation tempers that. Um, it puts down rules to provide outcomes that we think are actually in our interest, not just the politicians. Uh, when it comes to lying, um, we have lots of regulation that says in the corporate world that uh, you can't lie about products. So you can't market a product and say this will cure cancer when, of course, it won't. Uh, if you lie in that context, then you pay a price, you know, a big economic price. When it comes to politicians, I think that we can do much better in this area with what we call sort of truth and advertising rules. You, you can't regulate truth and speech completely. But what I think you can regulate is where particularly in an election campaign, people are holding something out to be true in order to win votes, and it's clearly not true, then there should be a consequence for that. There's a role for regulation. So an example would be if a politician stands up and says, my opponent has a policy of introducing the death penalty, and it's just absolutely wrong, well, there should be a consequence. Um, and it, we're not talking about opinion here. We're talking only about matters of fact. If somebody lies about matters of fact, then I think there is a role to intervene and uh, make sure that voters and other people get accurate information. Well, and I mean, it's certainly something that springs to mind when you talk about that is I'm seeing a lot of, um, I won't use his name, but his name rhymes with Shmive Shmama, um, <laughs> uh, advertisements on, on, on TV at the moment with a whole range of outlandish kind of claims. Um, uh, is that something that you would see as being captured um, by better um, truth and political advertising laws? And uh, have I yeah, characterized I think that it's correctly? not just that. There's a lot more than that. There's uh, uh, you had the Medi Medi-Scare campaign that Labor ran uh, previously. Yes, we had claims about death taxes that were not true. Mm. Um, I mean, it cuts both ways. Always, Absolutely. there's an inbuilt incentives for politicians to lie about their opponents to cast them in a negative light and to reduce the likelihood someone will vote for their opponents. Yeah. Um, so it's not surprising. Uh, and the strong incentive is there, but there's no countervailing regulation. So, yes, I think there is a role for the law here to pick up those demonstrably false statements of fact and to weed them out, and particularly given the level of fake 
information, disinformation within the system. I think we live in a world where it's endemic and we need regulation um, to assist us with that. Uh, what I wouldn't do is get into that area of opinion, the grey areas. We shouldn't regulate that too difficult. There's room for difference. It's just those demonstrably false statements. Yeah, absolutely. And, and certainly there's a distinction between, um, and that can be a bit grey, but between disinformation and misinformation. So, you know, that demonstrably intentionally misleading information, um, like you say, there's certainly an argument to carve that out. In most states and territories, we've got um, anti-corruption and integrity commissions of some description, different powers we've, we've seen in some states, those have been stripped back recently. Um, in general, how would you describe them? What, what do they do? I, I think they play a, a vital role in democracy and holding people with public power to account. Uh, that might be a politician, it might be a senior bureaucrat, it could even be a judge. Um, these are people who all are paid public money um, and to wield great power over our lives. And it might even be at the local council level, someone who uh, has the power to determine whether our development application goes ahead. They can deny it, um, but they might deny it unless we pay them a bribe. Um, or in other circumstances, they might allow development applications in order to um, receive money and thereby cause great harm to environment or to a community. So you need a body that um, has the power to look into these things and they need to investigate. It's really hard to root out this behaviour. Um, the courts can't do it. It's not their job. They only take cases once the evidence has been collated and the police or DPP brings an action. So you need a body that can investigate, that can hold people to account and can really provide a big disincentive for public mm. officials to engage in corrupt behaviour. Yeah, and we do have those disincentives at, at various jurisdictions, um, but but not at a Commonwealth level. Um, in, in 2018, the Commonwealth Government put forward um, uh, or they started a process to put forward, and I think in 2020 there was, an, there was a bill, um, a draft exposure bill put forward um, for a Commonwealth Integrity Commission. Um, it's been subject to a, a fair amount of criticism. Um, uh, I imagine it, that may include you. In your view, what are the strengths and weaknesses of, of that bill um, that, the, that the government has, has put forward? Well, at the Commonwealth level, yes, there's a gaping hole in corruption prevention. We don't have a body that can hold our politicians to account. And yes, there has been legislation, but it's been subject to a lot of criticism. It's not within parliament at the moment. Its fate is very uncertain. And the legislation that was introduced was toothless. Uh, it didn't permit public hearings um, in the circumstances where they're required. And it's one of the more important things. You need transparency. People need to see people being held to account. If things are done behind closed doors, well, will we learn the lessons? Uh, and can we be confident that, in fact, people are held to account? There are also issues about whether politicians in particular would be subject to this in the way that they should. Um, and, you know, pretty basic things about transparency, coverage, and the rest of it was incredibly complex and hard to understand. And it meant you end up with a regime that tied itself in knots and did not give confidence that it would deal with the problem of corruption. And one of the, just picking up on, on what you were talking about there, one of the, um, uh, the key issues there was it, it appeared that politicians would be held to a lower standard um, than, than some other um, members in the um, in the bill. So, for example, I believe um, police 
um, police members and whatnot would be held to a higher standard, whereas politicians um, wouldn't be. Is that is that have I characterised? Yeah, that was that? part of the problem too. Different yeah. standards, and I don't think there should be different standards. Um, the standard is corruption. Mm. If any person engages in corruption, it doesn't matter where they are within the public sector; they should be held to a single standard. Mm. And that was one of the complexities, but also a suggestion that uh, you know the politicians might be protecting themselves. Yeah, yeah, and as so as you indicate, like the the bill hasn't been well received by a great number of people. Um, in twenty twenty, um, Independent MP Helen Haynes in, introduced uh, uh, the Australian Federal Integrity Commission bill. Um, that that one also was about three hundred pages. Um, um, but I don't know what you, what are your thoughts on on that on that approach and the bill that she's put forward um, when you compare to to the Commonwealth's um, proposal. It's much better, and, and there are many good models out there. You can turn to many of the states. New South Wales, for example, has a good model. Um, mm-hmm. So there's actually no difficulty in developing a good model based upon transparency, public hearings, uh, coverage throughout the public sector well-resourced agency, it's actually not rocket science. We know what we need to do. The problem is not the drafting, it's in the political will and actually getting government members uh, to support this to get it through. And, of course, you know, in prior governments, the ALP didn't get through either. So both sides have some ground to make up. The ALP says it will introduce this if it wins. Um, The coalition says it would do it but hasn't done it, and we just need our leaders to get their act together and to bring this into force. And how do you you've picked you've picked up there that the New South Wales model um, is uh, one of the uh, you know provides one of the more robust models that if I'm if I'm not correct uh, if I'm not incorrect um, it uh, was the first it was the first um, anti corruption commission um, at a state level as my understanding in Australia that's in right Australia. and, and yeah. it's still arguably the most robust of those yeah and yet. It is the one that um, has been singled out um, by various parliamentarians as um, as being a model that we don't want to um, we don't want to go down. Do you, do you? And so the 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 characterisation there is that um, it's uh, guilty before it's not innocent before guilty. Um, whether or not this is determining guilt or whatnot, that um, I'd be interested in your views on that. But. How would you respond um, to those general criticisms of those more robust models and, um, you know, what that means for our democracy? And and the more robust an anti-corruption agency, the more likely it is you're going to get political pushback. Mm. So the fact that the New South Wales model has been criticised by politicians is a mark of its relevance and effectiveness. Uh, (laughs) It's designed to root out corruption and make people's lives difficult in politics if they have been involved in behaviour that might be corrupt. And it's been very, very effective in doing that. The number of people prosecuted who've left office in disgrace is very long in New South Wales, and that creates fear and concern. Um, But as it should, um, we've identified far too much corruption in New South Wales, and that agency has been instrumental. It has been suggested that the agency can be a bit of a witch hunt, um, a bit of a star chamber, because it does does hold public hearings. And, And there is some truth to that, because... Uh, when people are in public hearings, um, they don't have the right to silence in the same way. Mm. They um, are also subject to you know, intensive questioning. But I think that's what comes with this type of body and it's what comes with exercising public power. Mm. The, the bottom line is that body has identified many instances of corruption. It's been effective. And uh, I think it's been necessary um, that we have this. Uh, it's not clear it could have done its job without these strong powers. Yeah, yeah. 
I guess what we've been talking about here today is, um, uh, you know, a pretty abstract kind of um, concept, truth as it relates to politics, um, anti-corruption commissions, again, laws that, you know, transcend 300 pages and whatnot, various chambers, that can be pretty abstract. So I guess I'm trying to um, assist the listeners to think about what's at stake um, when we're considering um, whether we support anti-corruption commissions or not. So could you help us um, figure out how the world looks different, and by the world I mean Australia, with a robust anti-corruption commission? So that's one question. So how would things look different now? And then in 10 years' time, what could things look like if we continue not to have an anti-corruption commission at a Commonwealth level? Sure. Um, What's at stake is whether our political leaders um, exercise their power in our interests or their own personal interests. Hmm. Um, At its heart, that's what corruption is about. So do we want them spending millions and millions of dollars in ways that benefit themselves personally and perhaps their donors? Or do we want them to spend money on projects that benefit the community? Um, So the question is, how seriously do we take this issue of corruption and how seriously do we take the need to make sure politicians act in the community's interest? That's really what's at stake. Because if we don't fix that, then it really is a a deep and disturbing distortion within the political system because it means that the system is twisted to support political interests and not public interests. And we're talking billions and billions of dollars being spent here. So the the impact is very, very large. And we've seen many instances and things like the funding of grants programs where hundreds of millions, even billions across many programs has been funded to support outcomes that uh, align with political interest and not public interest. And that's a massive lost opportunity. Money could be used for schools, hospitals, all sorts of things. That's our taxes essentially being spent on things that are not what they should be spent on. And we've seen far too many examples of that um, over recent years. It it really is very disturbing. If we don't act, then I think it's foreseeable we'll see an ongoing erosion of standards in this area. Um, They're really pretty low in a number of these areas, given the willingness to, to spend on things aligned with political interest. And if we don't fix this, then um, we can see the slippery slope we're on and we'll likely continue down it. And the cost will be to us as a community, the health of our democracy, um, and also to basic services such as health and education, which depend upon good decisions being made about funding. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I, I share that fear that um, we, we are at forks in the road on this and, um, you know, we have a choice as an electorate about which way we want to um, want to go on that in terms of whether to have one or not. And um, it's, for me, it circles back to this question at the beginning of, well, don't all politicians lie? Um, well, that doesn't mean we shouldn't have robust regulatory oversight or infrastructure to deal with the fact that there's always an incentive for politicians to lie. Well, and when you have something as endemic as that, that's where you need regulation. It's a bit like corporations. Of course, they will misrepresent their products to make money. That's why we regulate markets so as to provide good and accurate information to consumers. We know politicians have an incentive to lie. We intervene to mitigate that risk. Absolutely. Well, I think you've given us a really rich account of, um, uh, you know, what, why truth matters to politics. And I hope, I hope the listeners know that um, uh, pretty well so far already. But um, 
what anti-corruption commissions um, mean for politics um, at a state, but importantly at a Commonwealth level where we lack a, that current infrastructure. And then also what's at stake um, if we uh, continue down this path, um, but also, you know, there's, there's opportunities if we, if we move down a different path. What's one thing that you want the listeners to go away and do today after, after listening to you? I think if they care about this, the, the best thing they can do is to, to write the, to the local member, write to a newspaper expressing their belief in what should happen, um, demanding action. Um, in the end, we're coming into periods where voices and votes matter and people need to make sure their voice is heard. Absolutely. Thank you so much, George. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Pleasure. Thank you.